0: This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website, www.anchorchurch.com.au. This week we've had a builder come by our house because our house is cracked. Um, Unfortunately, I painted last year and it wasn't because of my painting. But in spite of my painting, as I was making my way through the hallway wall, we had a very hot summer Last year, and this year again, we haven't had much rain. And because of that, our house, which is built on clay, all of a sudden, bricks move and walls move and it's resulted in quite a large crack. Uh, I thought of painting it, but I spoke to the the manager at uh, the college and said, look, you know, this is going on, should I patch it up? And he said, listen, the foundation is the problem. We had somebody yesterday come to our house and they made their way down through the manhole and they started looking through and he discovered that there's not only uh, cracks in the wall, he says that the foundation, because it's based on clay which moves, he said there are some parts of the floor which are moved away up to over an inch from where they're meant to be. And I said, what can we do about this problem? He said, look, I can fill in some gaps, I can add a little bit of this, a little bit of that. He said, but at the end of the day, your problem is one of foundations. He said, if you get the foundation and we fix that, then we can work together to have a nice stable house. Currently, I walk around the house. Every time I take a step, there's a creek, there's a bouncing floorboard, but I want a house that's solid. And as I was thinking about that and even driving up here, reflecting on that, I really think the passage that we're going to look at today in Matthew's Gospel is going to really help us think through the importance of a good foundation. Because as I share with you this week, we're going to be looking at this idea of radical discipleship. I'm going to suggest to you this morning that radical discipleship, being a a learner, being a follower of the Lord Jesus, starts with getting your foundation right. It starts with getting the foundation right. Get the foundation wrong and things get skewed. And I know this is preaching to the choir, but my point is pretty simple this morning. And that is the foundation is everything we've been singing about. It is Christ alone. It's not the foundation based upon my giftedness. It's not the foundation based upon the structure of a church. The foundation needs to come back to my identity in who Christ is and what he's done for me. This weekend, I'm going to share with you, and to be honest, it's nothing novel. It's not new. It's things that you're going to be aware of. But I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul, who, writing to the church at Rome. He gets to the end in chapter 15, and he says, I know that you're competent, I know that you are able to instruct one another in love, but I write these things to remind you. And my goal this week is just to remind you of him. And if I do that, I can leave, I can get in my car, drive back up, you know, the six-hour journey back to Sydney. But that's really what it's about, finding our foundations in Christ. Get that right and everything else falls into place. Get that wrong, and your life and my life are going to be filled with cracks that we are seeking perpetually to fill. So, if you've got your Bible, open it up to Matthew's Gospel, and we're going to be spending some time there, looking this morning specifically at Matthew chapter 3. We're going to go to the very beginning of the ministry of the Lord Jesus, and it's a passage in some ways. That is a little bit hard to understand and it's left Bible commentators and scholars far brighter than I scratching their heads. But I really think as we come to a passage on Jesus' baptism, we're going to get some foundational things that I just want to remind you of that are central to your faith and your identity. Uh, You probably know this, but the word disciple has at its very base the idea of being a learner. Uh, The Greek word methetes comes from a verb menthano, to learn something. And in Bible times, it wasn't just a Bible kind of nerd word. A menthano or a mathetes, a learner, was somebody who would get next to somebody and follow them and learn from them. It was in the language of an apprentice. It was the uh, just one example even from Matthew's Gospel. Jesus says, if you're tired and you're weary, take his yoke upon you. Now, I'm not really a farming kind of guy. I grew up in Newcastle, not too far from here. Uh, but I'm aware of some of the... Uh, ancient farming techniques, and one was the yoke. They would get two ox together, and the plural of ox is oxen. They would get these oxen together, and they would put this brace around their neck, and they would walk down the paddock, and they'd have a a plough behind them, and they'd plough the fields. But when they would do that, they would often get an old ox, a wise ox, a large ox, and they would yoke that ox to an apprentice ox. And I think when Jesus even tells us to take his yoke upon us... The idea is we need to hook up with Jesus, as it were, and learn from him, plow the field with him, learn from him. But as we do, we come to Matthew's gospel. This is where the foundation starts. It actually doesn't start with us doing things, but learning, listening and seeing who the Christ is. Matthew chapter three, I'll be reading from verse 13. If you've got your Bibles, you want to keep that open and we'll be spending our time in Matthew's gospel. Let me read to you Matthew Chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. By way of context, John has been baptizing and now Jesus arrives. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But God tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then... John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him, and a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love with him. I'm well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, as we listen now to your word, I pray that your Spirit might meet with us, that we would leave this place not just being smarter sinners, but transformed people, people who reflect and build our lives upon the foundation of the truth of your gospel, that as we've been singing, that in Christ alone we would find our identity, joy and delight. So now speak to us, for we expect to hear your voice. Amen. Amen. Matthew's gospel is one full of surprises. As you open up the gospel... If you've not read it before, or even if you have, you'll notice that there are certain things there that are quite astonishing. In Matthew chapter 1, we begin, and I'm just giving you a bit of background to where we find ourselves in chapter 3, but in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, we get the ancestry of the Saviour. Matthew's really clear in what he wants to do with his gospel, and in chapter 1, verse 1, he begins with this. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Right from the get-go, he wants you to notice a couple of things. He's writing this book and he says right up front, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the anticipated one. He's connected to David and he's connected to Abraham. And then he goes through and he gives a list of uh, the ancestry related to those those particular individuals. Now, why is that important? Well, Matthew, right from the get-go, wants us to realise who Jesus is. And this is going to be part of that... Cornerstone, that foundation building, he wants you and I to get the right orientation as to who Jesus is. He doesn't begin, he ends the book by giving a commission. Jesus will give a commission that we'll look at tomorrow go and make disciples of all nations. But Matthew doesn't start that way. He doesn't begin and say, This is the book that's going to teach you how to be a disciple. His starting point, his foundation stone, is that Jesus is the Messiah. And he's connected to David and Abraham. Now, why David and Abraham? Well, we know from the Old Testament, these were the great promises given. God had given promises to Abraham that through him, all nations would be blessed. And that through a descendant of Abraham would come the redemption of the world. God would make things all new through one of these descendants. Specifically, in 2 Samuel 7, we will get a promise made to David. That David, one of your sons, one of your children, will eventually sit on your throne and rule forever and ever. And Matthew's going to say right from the get-go, that person is Jesus. Now here's the surprising thing. When you go through, and I've been doing this with my son, we've been going through reading the Old Testament together. We do about two chapters a night. Uh, I think it's partly an excuse for for, um, him to stay up a bit longer. Uh, But I get in the bed and we're reading the New Living Translation and we've been through 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, we're now in 2 Kings, and we just read some chapters. And it's interesting... When we were going through Samuel, we started looking at kings. And I said, uh, Adam, the world's wrecked, but God's made this promise to David. One of his sons is going to rule. And so we get to Solomon. My son got excited. Oh, he sounds like a good guy. And I told him the Hebrew name for Solomon, Shlomo. All right? And so he's like, oh, maybe Shlomo will be the, the one. And we get through Shlomo, and then Shlomo gets too many wives. He got disappointed with David. He liked David. And then he got a bit further in David's life. He's like, no, this guy's a mess. Then we go through Shlomo, Shlomo starts off all right, but then he goes a bit further, likewise foolish decisions, marries too many women, foreigners, starts following face gods, that's no good. Then we go a bit further and it starts to get Solomon's sons, and you get guys like Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and they're making all sorts of mistakes, and my son just shakes his head. Idiots. Okay, (laughs) and we're going through, and as we're going through, I can't wait, we've still got a few chapters to go. But as I was reading this, I was going down this list just in my private reading for this. Matthew 1 is scattered with dodgy people who are inadequate. That even in God's providential purpose, there's names in here that are imperfect. You've got Rahab. You remember Rahab? At least here she's known as Rahab. Usually when her name even turns up in the New Testament, it's Rahab the harlot. Her name's in here. I go through and I look at some of these people, as I've mentioned, Rehoboam, Shlomo. These are corrupt folks. These are broken folks. And Matthew will surprisingly say, in this line of broken people, God will prove faithful, and he does so when Jesus arrives. The one we've been anticipating, my son is anticipating this, and I don't know how long to keep the suspense. He knows Jesus is the answer. Okay, but I'm trying to drag it out. Can you see what this guy's doing? Can you see why we need a better saviour? Matthew starts off there's a Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the one of expectation. But surprisingly, he's coming not how you would expect. We move on from the ancestry to the announcement of Jesus' birth in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, through the rest of the chapter, verse 25. And there you get an announcement made to Joseph and to Mary. And it's really interesting, we'll see this name that he's given, Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Again, Matthew indicating, why is this Messiah coming? What will be part of his role? His role will be to save people from their sins. He'll be called Emmanuel, God with us. And Matthew's laying and building carefully all these foundation stones. He doesn't rush straight to, here's a response, what you need to do. And I fear even in my own Christian walk, that's what I want to do, right? I want to read the Bible and say, what do I do? Rather, I need to be reading the Bible and say, what does this teach me about your character, Lord? What can I learn about your grace, your mercy, your love, your joy, your providence, your sovereignty? An announcements made Mary and Joseph discover they're going to have this son, Emmanuel, God, with us. You should name him Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. Then we have this adoration that is poured out as Magi come from the east and they come and they worship the Lord. And what Matthew will do, very interestingly, even though it's a surprise to us, that Jesus is born in this little dinky town called Bethlehem. Going to take you there later in the year, buddy. It's a dinky town. Even now there's not much going on there. And yet, God in his sovereignty promised years and years earlier Out of this least town, I'm going to send my king. And it's surprising to us that no, 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 he should be born in Jerusalem. He should be born in a palace. He should have kings from Egypt and Samaria and Tyre and Rome and others coming and offering gifts. But no, that's not how it happens. And there's a surprising element, yet in that surprising element, you will see if you've got a Bible like mine, there will be a series of indentations indicating scriptures from the Old Testament. And those scriptures point us to the fact that in God's sovereignty, this is no surprise. This is part of his promise. We move forward and we get to chapter 3. And after spending time in Egypt, Jesus, the promised one who's arrived... We hear nothing of him other than his family moved up to the Galilee, to Nazareth. And then we jump forward 30 or so years. Now, how do we know it's 30 years? We know from the gospel that Jesus was about 30 when he started his ministry. And it's at this time, in verse 13, when we get to our text, it'll say, then Jesus came to Galilee. But before that, we have this man who's walking around preaching that the Messiah is coming, prepare the way quoting Isaiah the the, the prophet, quoting Malachi. And he's dressed up, and even as he's dressed up in this garb, I remember going through uh, some of these books of Kings and Samuels, and you get Elijah the prophet. And what's he wearing? He's wearing this sort of outfit. And I'm wanting to say to my son, Hey, son, you you, you know this guy here, Elijah? See what he's wearing? Anyone else, you know, who does that? Oh, yeah, the, the locusts. I don't know why people eat locusts. John the Baptist ate locusts? Ah, And we're making connections all the way through. And here's John, and he's out there. It's a surprise to us, It's a surprise to all Jerusalem. We read that, go out to see this guy. But it's no surprise to God. He is laying the foundation upon which the Messiah will come and that we will discover who this saving God is. So we come, and John has been preaching this baptism of repentance. And he's promising, there's one greater than me who is coming whose thongs I'm not unworthy to tie. That's where we find ourselves in verse 13. And I love this first word. It's a little word, but it's a chronological word. It's a word indicating time. Then Jesus came. It's as if the, the curtain is rolled back. Now, can I present to you the star of the show? And Jesus came to Galilee. Now, if you're a bit like me, you just read it, oh, okay, then Jesus came, yeah, what do you do next? 400 years God has not spoken. 400 years their country's undergone turmoil, they've had the Torah, they've had the Tanakh, the, the Hebrew Scriptures, and they've longed for this day when the prophet, this son of David, would come. But their lives are full of heartbreak. There were lepers around the Galilee, there are people who had gone through multiple relationships. There are people who were infirmed with disease. And they would heard early, maybe even through the rumor mill, there was a thing a few years ago that they said that there was this, this one who was born who'd be the king. But it's been 30 years and no one's seen him. A voice of one in the wilderness. Then Jesus came from Galilee. Man, I'm glad that verse is there. Man, I'm glad that God said, you know what? This world is broken, but I have a plan. I'm going to lay a foundation. You wouldn't believe it even if I told you so. And Jesus came at their hour of need, in the fullness of history, surprising for us, the manner, the method, the place. But in God's wisdom, this has always been part of his agenda. And as we make our way through this passage, I'm just going to go through and I'm just going to make two very, very basic observations that are just reminders for us of things that we can learn about Jesus and his baptism that will lay the foundation for understanding who we are then as his disciples. Verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to be baptised by John. Galilee is up in the north of Israel, it's sort of the backwoods uh, in Jesus' day, and even in the backwoods, there were some towns that were more hillbilly than others. Nazareth was one of those towns. Uh, you'll remember in the Gospels, it says that uh, this one Jesus, can anything good come from Nazareth? Remember that in John's Gospel? Okay, they're, they're, they're hillbillies. They're kind of a bit crazy. And part of the reason people thought, perhaps that they were a little bit out there, is that they're a small town, and it says, if you remember in the scripture, Jesus shall be called a Nazarene. Okay, and people say, well, what does that mean? Is that, what's this or that? Well, the word netzer means stump. And they think that in Isaiah, when it talks, Isaiah prophesied, he said, out of the stump of Jesse will come this Messiah. And some people believe that this group in Nazareth, they saw themselves as the stump people. Okay, this little town, but they said, from us is going to come the Messiah. You crazy guys. Hillbillies. And yet, surprisingly, this is where Jesus comes. He's up there in the Galilee, this obscure place, and he makes his way down to the Jordan. Now, we're not sure where he was baptised in the Jordan. There are two traditional spots, one up in the north, just at the bottom of the Sea of Galilee, and then another place further uh, down towards Jericho. And so when Jesus comes from Galilee down to the Jordan to be baptised, it could have been 20 kilometres, it could have been up to 80 or 100 kilometres. And while the location is not important... The fact here, when we read in verse 13, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptised by John. There's an intent there. Jesus is not just, oh, what am I doing today? I might go for a stroll. He goes to the Jordan to be baptised. There is a purpose as to what Jesus is doing. This is not just haphazard. This again fits into Matthew's big account. This is all taking place just as God plans. Why? Because the promises he gave to Abraham, the promises he gave to David, Jesus is the one who's going to answer that. And he makes his way there. John, though, tries to deter him. This is an unusual scene. This unusual passage. Jesus comes to be baptized. Now, why? If we know what's going on here in baptism, if we're to go a bit earlier in chapter 3, look at verse 6. And they came to John, confessing their sins. They were baptized in the Jordan River. They were baptised, sinners. And yet here, Jesus turns up and he jumps in line. And he intentionally jumps in line. It's not like he's in aisle seven and he realises I should be in aisle three. Now, Jesus turns up in order to be baptised and John gets wind of this and says, whoa, 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 whoa. No, no, no. And the emphasis in the original language is on the, the personal pronoun. No, 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 no. I need to be baptised by you. What are you doing? And John doesn't like this idea one bit. And Bible commentators don't like this one bit. And if I'd been writing this scripture, I would have said, well, it's probably not a great idea for Jesus to be baptised. What's going on? John says, it is, no, Jesus rather says, let it be so now. Why? Why? For it is proper for us to do this, to fulfil all righteousness. In Matthew's Gospel, this is the first words of Jesus. It's right. It's proper. It will fulfil all righteousness. Now, there's several speculations. Why does Jesus need to be baptised? Some people think that maybe Jesus came in order to affirm John. Okay? Look, John, I don't really need to be baptised, but I'm coming along to affirm you and your ministry and to show people, hey, I've, you know, God's given their, his endorsement to you. And that doesn't wash. No pun intended. Some people think that he came, oh, it was a, a symbol that you were following the teachings of somebody else. Baptism was sometimes used for that, but it's not that Jesus is saying, hey, I need to, to affirm the teaching of John the Baptist, even though he probably does. There's something more going on here. Jesus says, "It is let it be so now. He wants to be baptised. It is proper for us to do this. Now, why? Why does Jesus need to be baptised? If baptism is the symbol of going down in the water to identify, and it comes on the basis of confession, I've done the wrong thing, why does Jesus go down? You know there wasn't a greater person according to Jesus than John the Baptist? And yet what's John the Baptist's response when he sees Jesus? No, 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 no. You've got to bat- you baptise me? I can't baptise you. It is proper to fulfil all righteousness. And here's the one, folks, very simple. Jesus goes down into the waters of baptism. He lines up, gets involved and gets baptised. Why? To fulfill all righteousness. As part of God's sovereign plan, the Messiah would come, and according to Isaiah 53, it says that he would be numbered among the transgressors. Jesus is in line with adulterers. He shouldn't be there. Jesus is in line with people perhaps who have committed murder or violence. He should not be there. And yet Jesus comes down and we get a snapshot of God's marvellous plan that in his marvellous plan to fulfil all scriptures, Jesus will come as the one numbered among the transgressors. He will be among the people as doing what the people would do. If I can put it more crudely like this, let's say we've got our name tags here and mine's spelled incorrectly but we're going to forgive that one. <laughs> but here's, here's the thing. Suppose we were to come here or we were engineering type folks or we liked a bit of structure and we're down there at the Jordan River and hundreds of people are coming out to be baptised. They're coming to confess their sins, repent of what they've done. And so a couple of us uh, who are more organised in structure, we say, okay, we need some structure. This is a bit of a madhouse. Let's get tables and we'll do them alphabetically. A to F, G to N, and then so forth and so forth. And we'll, we'll spread out seven or eight tables and here's what we'll do. We'll get some of the, uh, the, the more religious folks, the pastors. So Matt, you can be over here and, Aldo and so forth. And we get you guys lining up, get the sinners all in a row. And we sinners come down and we've got name tags. And so we've got the markers out there. What's your name? John. Okay, John. Okay, John, what's your worst sin that you've ever done? I've been sexually immoral many times. John, sexual immorality, boom, planted on your chest. Next, Kate, Kate, hi Kate, you've come here to be baptised, to confess your sins, what is the worst thing you've ever done? Had an abortion. Kate, abortion. Stand in line. Next. As you go down, and they're standing there in line, can you imagine this? You there with your worst sin, publicly acknowledging, confessing before God, I've done the wrong thing. Adultery, slander, murder, hatred, stealing, theft, abuse, whatever your worst sin is, and there you are standing in line. The image of Jesus coming to be baptised is the image of Jesus standing then in line? Next, your name, Jesus. Worse than you've ever done? Haven't done it. And it would be then the image of Jesus coming up. On the altar. I see what you've done. Let me take your name tag, Sarah. See what you've done. Let me take your name tag. Bruce, Robert, Kate, Sarah, David, Malcolm, Scott. And he takes our name tags. And can you imagine turning? Oh, I think those of us who love the Lord would say, whoa, 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 Jesus, come on. Now, look, you know, you've got to build a ministry. You've got to have some respect here. All right, maybe some of those smaller sins, but abortion, hatred violence but Jesus comes and he is numbered among the transgressors because you see at his baptism he will identify with humanity he will be numbered among the transgressors not because he's got anything to confess but as part of God's sovereign plan he must come and he must be among the people and live the life to be baptized the baptism. And as he comes to this passage, or this section rather, and John says, No, no, no. Jesus says, Yes, yes, yes. And it's as if Jesus goes down into the water with our name tags, fully identifying with us. He'll start Matthew's gospel identifying with the people that he came to save. That's his name, right? The one who will save people from their sins. We'll get to the end, we'll get to the cross and he'll do exactly the same thing. He will identify with those who do not know what they are doing. This is the foundation stone of discipleship. It's not based on us making greater efforts to be more committed. It's based upon the fact that God has come to dwell amongst us and has come to understand the way that we live. We have a sympathetic high priest who's been tempted and tested in every way that we have, yet without sin. Jesus does this to fulfill all righteousness. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, we get this great Trinitarian thought. There is the son being baptized, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am very pleased. I am well pleased. We have this wonderful picture. Jesus comes up out of the baptism. What he's doing there, we're still kind of blown away. Why would he do that? Why would he take a name tag? Why would he get down in the dirty Jordan River? He's come to get in the dirty river to identify and associate with us, the one that we need. And as he comes up out of the water, we get the affirmation of the Godhead. Jesus comes up and the Spirit beautifully comes down on him like a dove. It's language here of peace and the Spirit's presence fully with this one. The Father says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Now, I've only got one son. I've got two daughters. I love my daughters. I tell my eldest, she's my favorite firstborn daughter. I tell my youngest, you're my favourite baby girl. And I say to my son, you are my one and only son. But here's the thing, and you've probably picked this up already, I'm pretty proud of my son. He got two runs at cricket last week. (laughs) The best two runs ever. And there's something about, I look at my son and I take great pride. Here is the father delighting in his son. And what's he delighting in his son? In what context? the son being in a dirty river, identifying with dirty sinners. And the father says, yes, this is my son. Why? Because this is part of God's purpose. This is part of the father's great plan, and the son fully obeys. Now friends, what does this passage teach us? What is he trying to say through this account? I think two things stand out for us to learn as foundation stones to build our life upon in regards to the Lord Jesus. And the first is this. When we think, and uh, uh, we were talking uh, in preparation for this, having this thing radical, in radical discipleship. Radical has the connotation of something that's extreme. When Jesus, we have, I think in his baptism, we see a radical humility. An astonishing radical humility. He comes down and he takes your name tags. He doesn't deserve your name tag. He doesn't deserve my name tag. He's the glorious son of God, the second member of the Trinity. And yet, the scriptures we read in Philippians, he humbled himself and became obedient. And he turns up in the appearance of man. If that's not humbling enough, he he goes to the cross, hung there naked on a cross, mocked, spat, called all sorts of abhorrent names, mixing it up with sinners. And yet we learn something from this humility. We have a God who comes to serve. And we'll see tonight as we, we look at some of the implications of reflecting God's character in Philippians 2, that great passage that talks about the humility of Christ, that actually comes from an application. It's really an illustration of something Paul said in the previous context there in Philippians chapter two, he says, "You're to have unity." You ought to have this like-minded. You don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but that you value others more than yourselves. And that's really what Jesus does for us here. By coming down with us, he has this utter humility, the God-man. Should have been born in a palace, but that wasn't part of God's purpose. He should have appeared the first time on stage, not in a desert, not down at the stinky old Jordan River. He should have turn up on a stage with dignitaries and kings and monarchs. Yet this is part of God's purpose. And Jesus' baptism demonstrates the humility that Jesus will call us to in discipleship. I can look around this room, I know you've got some pretty gifted people here, some pretty special folks, but it's not like God needs special folks to get his work done. He doesn't need me to come and be his spokesman. He has spoken through creation. He has spoken to us in these last days through a son. We'll see tonight, he gives us grace that we can extend his grace. And friends, Jesus' humility reminds us that we are to be servants rather than those expecting to be served. But Jesus' baptism also teaches me of a radical purpose of God. Jesus' baptism reminds me of the radical purpose of God. This is no accident that Jesus is identifying with sinners. The songs that we sing, I love the the songs, not just here that we sing. I love to sing. Uh, I won't do it for you. I love to sing. And you know why I sing? It actually genuinely bubbles up within me, not because I'm a great singer, but I love to sing in front of my kids. We sing in the car. And sometimes it's Lionel Richie, you're once, you're twice, you're three times a lady. And I look over at my wife. But most of the time, bubbling up with me is this joy. Let me sing about what God has done. Why? Because he's my foundation. So I want my kids to know what my life is built upon. My life is not built upon my degrees. My life is not built upon whether I speak at things or not. My life is not built upon my personality or, or what I hope to achieve. My identity is fully in the fact that I've been in a river and I've got a savior who's taken my name tag. And I could tell you about my past and some elements of shame, and Jesus took it. There's now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. The ancient writer said, or songwriter, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. And I want my kids to know, and I want you to know, that is your song. That is what gives you life. That is what gives you joy. That's why we want to take this message out to our friends. The one who has been forgiven much, loves much. This passage reminds me, there is a God who humbly came to love you, to serve you as part of his master plan so that you might build your life upon that, find your satisfaction in that. A few years ago, I got a GPS for Father's Day. I only had it for a week. And then our house got broken into and got stolen. Gotta love the inner west. (laughs) But here's the thing, I remember driving with my new toy, it was a GPS, and and I downloaded Sean Connery's voice on it. In 500 meters, turn right. Okay, and it was fantastic. But I was driving one day into the city somewhere and as I'm driving, I was so enamored with the voice of Connery that I missed my turn. Okay, I just kept driving. And then he he said this word, recalculating. Recalculating. I find in my own walk with God that there's so many ways for me to get distracted. None of them bad. Some of them bad. But often I find my life just drifting, not aimlessly entirely, but I just get so busy that I forget what my purpose is. This weekend gives us all a chance to recalculate. And we need this regularly, don't we? Keep coming back to what is the foundation, what is the goal? And I would say this, the goal is Christ. Christ is enough. Build your life upon that rock, that cornerstone that shall not be moved. There's things that we can learn but my goal even in this talk is not so much here's three things or five things to do as much as it's for us to lift our eyes again. What a God we have, numbered among the transgressors that we might have life and have it to the full and that is part of his glorious purpose. Jesus' baptism speaks to me of a radical humility and a radical purpose of God. And it's that purpose that we get to participate in as his learners, as his disciples. So this weekend we're going to continue to do it. I know that you've, you're doing this in a life of anger already, but we keep walking the journey. And as we walk the journey, we keep recalculating, coming back to Christ, Christ, Christ. May that be our joy as we sing in the car, as we sing in church, as we share that good news with those who don't yet know the Master. Our Lord Jesus Christ is wanting to take the name tags of people and give them hope and joy. May we as disciples be facilitators of pointing people to the Christ. Amen? Amen. 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 Let Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this, your word that speaks of your glorious Son we are well pleased in him as well because in him we have life, we have forgiveness, we have joy, we have hope. And I pray for each of us that just as John called for repentance, that for some of us here, Lord, we've been so busy that we've gotten away from the cornerstone, the foundation. I pray that you'd forgive us, that you'd bring us back even this weekend as we reflect and engage and we have coffee and we we enjoy your creation that in the midst of that, not far from that, would be on our lips the praise of what you've done and what you are doing in our lives. We thank you that your son was numbered among the transgressors to fulfill all righteousness so that we might have life. Help us to walk in step with your spirit as we live to reflect him as disciples. And we ask this for Jesus' reputation. Amen.